I, I guess I'm constantly innovating. I don't even think about it. I mean, most women putting on their makeup probably reinvent themselves, you know, six times over in a year. And, and so I would say we're all innovators. You just have to find the ways that you are innovative and utilize that purpose in a different way. I mean, every time I open my, my refrigerator, figure out what I'm going to make for dinner, it, that's an innovation process. Because, you know, when you have a, a jar of capers, three mushrooms, you know, and you know, mysterious items that are hopefully not taking a life <laughs> of its own, um, you have to figure out what to do with all of that, you know, or call for takeout. <laughs> A recurring theme that comes up in these conversations is how essential curiosity is to the process of creativity and innovation. For as many times as a great idea is hatched in mere moments, marked by flashing light bulbs, I'd make the argument that creativity and innovation is a gradual process that, like a good marinade, works better with some time. And the virtue that provides the stamina for this is continued curiosity. I recently visited Walt Disney World, the most magical place on Earth. To me, it's also a place where imagination is made tangible. Since the early 1950s, the Walt Disney Imagineering Group has been responsible for conceptualizing, designing, and building some of the most legendary entertainment experiences around. And they have a very specific process that they take to bring ideas to life. After needs identification, they start a process called Blue Sky Sessioning, where ideas are not burdened by constraints or budget. That happens in the next phase. What's interesting is that many of the ideas born out of the blue sky often sit on a shelf for later development, perhaps when the technology, budget, or context allows for it. This is a good example of the longitudinal view of innovation. It simply takes time. And this is the approach that Dr. Nancy Tsai took. Today we talk about her journey to help invent the Blink Reflexometer, a mobile device that can be used to test for concussions and other mild brain injuries. Keep in mind, this innovation took more than a decade to bring to market, and all while she was a practicing doctor. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nutter, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. You, did you know that you wanted to be in medicine growing up? Because it is a commitment to, to, to pursue that as a, as, a, as a vocation, really an advocation once it becomes that for you. Well, and when you first start, when you say it, you, you like the idea of doing it, right? But you don't really know what's all involved. The first time I was asked what I wanted to be, I think I was about three or four, and I told them, I said, I, I'm going to be a doctor and in a different language. And they said to me, girls don't become doctors, they become nurses. And I looked at them and I said, I'm going to be a surgeon. I got derailed. I went into radio broadcasting for a bit for fun. Not, it wasn't so much a career. It was just more for fun. And I did make a little bit of money at it. But eventually, I kind of circled back around and said, you know, 
I need, I need to do medicine. It challenges me. It, it makes a difference. The field of medicine as a whole is constantly innovating through new pharmaceuticals, technologies, and research findings. But how can a practicing doctor take innovation into their own hands? It used to be that, that physicians were also small business persons. Uh, as we grew, we found out that there are certain quantums of practices. The solo practitioner takes on a lot of overhead costs. And so what you have are these small groups because they're able to consume a certain amount of resources effectively and efficiently. But then once you move into the next quantum and you know you serve four to seven and then you go into the 20 to 30-ish, then they can own their own building, have their own um, human resources and just employ a bigger space. You know, there's these little quantums of practices. And we've sort of figured that out. Are there innovators? Sure, there are. And how do they innovate? Do they innovate in the space by being more efficient in their practices? Or do they create new technology that makes a difference? And how does that come about? I have to say that mine kind of came about as an accident. I file a lot of useless knowledge away in my head, which means you don't want to play Trivial Pursuit with me. But regardless, um, I can actually string that and figure out, well, what can I do with that? How can I use this piece of information to uh, slightly differently, but in a positive way that makes a difference? I don't really think that a lot of people that, that's not the way they practice. But for those people who want to be a little bit creative, there is a little bit of that space to create. And you just have to find the right team to support you in that process. When she started to talk about filing things away in trivial pursuit, man, that was so easy for me to relate to that because in, in both in, in the work that I do, but just also in, in being around so many people in the creative space, that's kind of our definition for creativity and innovation, the idea that you've got all these sort of disparate uh, things, ideas, knowledge, tidbits, or whatever, and you kind of glue them all together. Well, um, and so I, I think it's that that natural tendency of, of filing things away is what really makes an innovator. Can you really teach somebody to do that innately? I don't know. But, you know, the fact that, that Nancy does, it's obviously what led to a lot of her success. And she's obviously curious, right? That's probably an undercurrent for all of that. She's curious about so many things. She starts in radio. I'm sure she's just got this penetrating intelligence that just kind of wants to know more, right? And so she's exposed to stuff. She learns about it. She files it away. She sees other things. She files it away. And you're right. It's it's just that that sort of thirst to 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 want to know more. Um, and she keeps talking about how she just sort of journals this back later on as we talk with her. Laura, you're you're you got your start in the creative field too, right? Yeah, my my path to innovation is completely accidental, um, and, and don't have a degree. In fact, I don't think it even exists. There's not a degree in innovation. I started off as a graphic designer. Came to the University of South Carolina and uh, their communications program. I never changed my major, but I. I would eventually join a, a co-ed professional business organization. Um, and through that, I would meet co-founders. At first, we were just kind of trying to solve a problem within our actual chapter of our organization, but would eventually kind of snowball into a small business. And we were advised to go join an incubator. I didn't even know what that even was at 18, 19 years old. And after I graduated, um, I was to, our 
our main founding member that was still there. New leadership was kind of taking over that program, and they were still meeting with every company that was on the roster, and we were technically one of those. So flash forward about a year later, I was asked to join that team. And it's kind of funny, I had a I had a job offer from an ad agency in Charlotte, and I had this job offer to help run a, a new technology incubator. And my parents were just shocked that I would take something completely outside of my field. My, my job responsibilities was a bolted list of stuff seven pages long, you know, it, my, to say it was a job description would be well, laughable. Yeah, a bit laughable. <laughs> um, but I felt like I could learn something there. I, I believed in the team. And in fact, I still work alongside with those people to this day. And that the ad world was never going anywhere. I could revisit it later. And so I loved my time running the technology and In fact, I think we've already we've already met some of my fellow entrepreneurs in the past with Philippe Herndon. And and so, anyways, uh, eventually, as success was happening there, uh, University of South Carolina asked our team to kind of evaluate the opportunities of how USC could could better partner with industry. And so I'd eventually jump over to USC and got more of the academic and research R&D side of, of innovation. So now kind of here I am today, uh, kind of combining both those experiences uh, from the state level. But when I tell people this story is, I never intended to do what I do for a living, but I love what I do. So I, I can relate to stories like Nancy's that you know, find themselves in innovation, not necessarily out of, you know, it was their plan, but just something that naturally they gravitate towards and now make it a part of their everyday. Nancy's journey to the blink reflexometer was a long and winding one. But now she has a piece of potentially disruptive technology on her hands. So what are we looking for with a blink reflex? We are basic, basically looking at different parameters. When you are looking at somebody and they're blinking, what you're not seeing is that there's side-to-side -side differences, depending on why they're blinking. If it's a spontaneous blink, it's probably going to happen at the same time. However, if it is a menacing blink, you know, say I'm, I, I come out and I, you know, try to launch a punch in you, at you or something, or if I take a Q-tip, if I puff an air near your eyeballs, something, then there are going to be side-to-side -side differences that are very subtle. And we, we capture this with videography. And what Kugelberg back in 1952 was able to do was identify there is an R1 component, which essentially is the electrical signal to tell the muscle to move. The R2 component, which is the muscle actually moving and generating the blink. And then there's a recovery period. And sometimes there's, there's a pathological R3. And what we're looking for is we typically only stimulate one side. And so if we stimulate one side, how does that translate to the other side? Are there side-to-side -side differences? Is there a difference between when the blink initiates? You don't think so, but there, there are. There's about 20 parameters that we look at to see whether there is a change, whether it is within normal limits, which is like one of those medical terms that we, we love to use and we really don't have any good ideas as to what it really means, because I think it evolves at times. And so what we're looking at is a very high speed capture of the differences in those parameters. So the first indication that we went after is to be used in mild traumatic brain injury. Pretty obvious when you've had a moderate to severe brain injury. Those people are pretty easy to identify. 
And with radiography, whether it's CT scans or MRI, you can see the changes on, on the brain scans. The hard part is we really just didn't have a place to describe you know, what we call concussion. And concussion is kind of a term like headache. It's, it's very subjective. We, we're starting to put more parameters on it. When you are able to look at the blink at a baseline when they haven't had any injury versus right afterwards, there is a distinct change in those parameters. And we've been able to identify what those changes are. And it's pretty impressive. In, in about 20 seconds, we can capture those parameters in a series of puffs and blinks. And within one minute, the answer is printed out to see whether the parameters are definitely changed from baseline or not. More than you think can be seen in the eyes. With a few puffs of air, the blink reflexometer measures 20 different variables of eye movement via a high-speed camera that can be used to identify mild brain injuries. The test itself takes less than two minutes, and perhaps most importantly, the device is mobile. Why don't we just haul the EMG out onto the field? I mean, come on, you know, if this, if this works so well, why wouldn't you just do it? The problem is EMGs need to be performed in a very strict parameter. You know, the, the rooms can't have fluorescent lighting, for example. Fluorescent lighting is, has a 60 hertz um, vibration, and it interferes with the electronics. The patients have to be a certain temperature. We have to measure and document their skin temperature. So out on the field, everybody has elevated skin temperatures, and sometimes it's wet and rainy, and electrical equipment out there that's got exposed wires, not very good. Needed something else. We need an enclosed system and a way to do it. And so I asked myself, well, if EKG and echocardiogram are looking at the same thing, but just slightly differently, why can't we have an analog? Why can't you take the EMG and create a blink reflexometer that looks at all the same parameters, but through videography. The next steps are for the first rollout, which is the concussion. It would be great for us to be in more sports. The more brain cells I save, the better. And yes, it's sexy to be in professional sports, but the ones, the ones I'm concerned about because I'm a mother is, are the kids. You know, your, your children are so vulnerable and it is a terrible thing for them to sustain uh, continued brain injuries. And we don't think about it, but I mean, you know, you, you're in soccer. If you hit the ball about a thousand times, then you probably sustain some sort of chronic traumatic, traumatic encephalopathy. I mean, we don't think about it, but it is true. We want them to be in sports, to potentially get the scholarships. We just want them to be in sports to enjoy it. and and be fit, you know, it's, it's my commitment to exercise as well. But at the same time, we, we wanna make sure they're safe. And you can't wrap them up in a bubble. You can make it better and safer. And that's what I'm trying to do with that. And we can eventually look at an indication where this is in every office, either as an app, as, you know, in some form, you know, resembling what we have, to where we can say, you know, you're starting to show some signs that are in the dopamine circuit. And, you know, we wanna just continue to monitor for Parkinson's. Or I'm starting to see some 
concern with uh, vascular dementia because these parameters are changed. We don't have that data yet, but I think eventually we're going to get to that point where we can differentiate between all of the different parameters and figure out what that looks like. All right, Laura, let's, let's help our listeners out here kind of visualize this. Today's version of her technology, it looks kind of like a Viewmaster Classic meets an Oculus, Oculus. Rift VR headset thingy, right? Yeah, on steroids. Yeah. And then like you stare into it on one end and it starts measuring your ear blinks, basically. Basically, yeah. It's got the technology built into it that it is a hyper-focused camera picking up minute details in your eye movement. And so with that information, they're able to tell if you've suffered some kind of concussion activity. Right. And so and so, sort of two things here, right? Because I, I think it's important that we also understand the, the cultural relevance of this thing, right? They have packaged this technology up into something that is portable and small- um, and could be on the sidelines at any kind of game and sport, right? And that's important because concussions are a pretty big deal these days. Yeah. So, I mean, they do still require some kind of, of, of pre-screening, you know, as she described as a baseline, but, you know, an athlete would need to have this test done before participating in sports. So we know what normal or healthy looks like. But you're right. This can be, this is a device that can be on the sidelines, just like any other equipment or for a youth, those those quintessential orange slices. You know, so the real relevance and the true impact that technology like this can have is, you know, we've seen in the big headlines, you know, kind of the, the rampant of, of concussion but let's let's get a little more detail here so the University of Pittsburgh's uh, Medical Center has pulled some information you know 1.7 to 3 million concussions in recreational sports happens each year five and ten go unreported or undetected two and ten high school athletes who play contact sports this includes things like soccer and lacrosse we're not talking about just football here experience a concussion. So this kind of technology, being able to to quickly identify it and start treating it is only going to help even little Johnny out there on the field who might be playing just in high school um, and things to keep in mind when you do sign your kids up for these sports. Right. Her biggest motivation was clearly, uh, I think, the safety uh, of, of children. And she obviously mentioned that with uh, reflecting on her own son. But when I, when I was talking with her uh, uh, kind of on the side, she was talking about how, how, how problematic, uh, um, concussions are. I mean, if, if left untreated, she kept talking to me about how, cause I have a son too. And, and she kept, or two actually, what am I talking about here? <laughs> but anyway, if left, left unchecked, they, they do have nasty long-term consequences. You can suffer from headache or fatigue, basically for the rest of your life. You won't be able to focus. Um, you, you might exhibit signs and symptoms and, or, or behavioral problems that could impact every aspect of your life, your ability to, to hold a job or gainful employment, um, and even to, to be in a healthy relationship. So, so she is really looking at, in some ways, uh, the future health of, of our society um, by looking at uh, this technology. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com.
So the, the, you started mentioning those things about filing them away and then bringing them together and then having potentially a, a, uh, uh, an epiphany. Uh, let's talk about the, the blink reflexometer. Um, can you talk about the vision there, how that came about, and, and that just unpack that whole story? Sure. I'll try to. There's, there's a lot of pieces, and there's actually what I call the mad rant. It's, it's like a six or seven page. It's kind of like James Joyce on crack of how I got to where I am. And it really outlines a lot of bizarre things that happened to me, including the fact that when I first started in medical school, I was part of a research team in a plastic surgeon's office. You know, she was doing nerve transpositions. And so <laughs> I was listening to a couple of the guys who had to rate these blinks, the symmetry of the blinks. And it was difficult. And I said, well, can't you break down the frames? And they said, no, it's, it's, it's VHS. <laughs> Betamax just beat out VHS and we haven't figured out how to deal with this. And so if you rated it too high, it's not accurate. If you rated it, if you rated it too low, then your primary investigator gets mad at you. Well, you need a metric, something that she cannot argue with and something that you can present so that the peer reviewer says, okay, this makes sense. So I filed that away. Well, fast forward about 10 years and the iPhone came out and digital photography came out and Kodak went away, <laughs> sort of. And um, what you saw was you could see discrete frames. You could count the blinks, you could count the, uh, how many seconds it took to do something. And so, again, filed that away. Additionally, I just noticed that as I was going through, the anesthesiologist would always test the blinks. Well, why is that? That's a, that's a marker of your consciousness. File that piece away. I went to Stanford to do physical medicine rehabilitation, and we have to do EMG as part of our rotations. I didn't actually do any blink EMGs, but I did have to study it. It was, it was on the board. We had to know something about it. And as I was going through it, it was, it was actually kind of fascinating. I found myself sort of perseverating and reading a little bit about it. And I watched people, especially brain injury, uh, on the brain injury unit, you get to see a lot of people walking through and, and just watching their reflexes. They definitely change. And it is, it's all in the eyes. The anoxic brain injured person, you know, sort of have this wide-eyed look. And the people who sustained other types of brain injuries, you know, they had a very droopy eyelid look. And universally, I would say that their blink rate decreased. And if you were to stimulate them, they weren't quite as responsive, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. Again, I needed that metric. And so all of these little pieces that I had filed away basically couldn't have happened until technology was invented that made it easier. I just packaged it nicer, I guess. I translated the EMG blink into something that you can take everywhere. The vision was there, the technology hadn't caught up until about 2008 or nine, which is when I was with MUSC. And they have a foundation for research and development, the FRD, but really back then they didn't have the resources to do it. It was just sort of like, great, you have this invention, um, bring it to us when it's ready. And I said, well, I was kind of hoping that maybe you guys could give me a hand here. And, but the nice thing is after 18 months, you have the right to go back and ask for it back. So in 2011, after I filed my, my uh, P12, 14, 16 or something like that, I can't remember what the number was, 
I went and asked for it back. And Dr. Jesse Goodwin said, do you want to talk to the Institute of Applied Neurosciences? Because I think they might be interested. And that was actually my home department, the neurosurgery department. And they looked at it. They loved it, loved the idea, and liked the science behind it. And took it back to the founders, the uh, funders of the Institute for Applied Neurosciences, which has been renamed the Zucker Institute of Applied Neurosciences, and off we went. So it's been a common theme through a lot of our, our Of Note episodes that timing is such a, a critical point. And it sounds like for Nancy, it, it's just as much true that, you know, in 2011, she was looking at actually now building some technology. And now actually, you know, she, she talks about Xeon or um, the Zucker Institute for Applied Neuroscience is opened in 2012. And uh, this is a really unique and almost kind of a bold experiment uh, to really help technologies like hers uh, accelerate and actually get into the, the clinic. Uh, so Xeon stands for the Zucker Institute for Applied Neurosciences. And what it really does is, is build on core competencies. It, it takes innovations at the concept level, surrounds the idea and the clinician, so in this case, Nancy, with a team of proficiencies that are around the intellectual property side, the engineering, and the commercial development, all to help actually get this technology to solve the need of what it was designed to do. So how did I come up with the device and the engineering, and was I always an engineer? I'm Asian, so I'm probably always an engineer, but that would be a stereotype, and probably apropos. You know, I always ask the medical students that I'm interviewing, what was my college major at the end of it? And, you know, they, they either, it's, it's either biochemistry, engineering, or math. And I, it's, it's none of those, you know. I graduated from the same uh, college department as Bruce Lee, so you can all look that up. But yeah, at some point I needed to create the engineering bit of it. I am not an engineering by education or by trade, but I need to figure that out. When I took my idea out of FRD, I was sort of left with this problem of, do I go to Clemson and talk to their biomechanical engineering department and figure out how I can put together a team but protect my IP. And fortunately for me, within a week, I ran into Mark Semler, who is now the CEO of the uh, Zucker Institute of Applied Neurosciences. And he said, I can make that for you. He is an engineer and he says, I can put together a team. We'll figure out this is, this is just a you know, a lot of little problems that we just have to task through now. In time, Nancy had connected with the right people in the state to help her develop a working prototype of the Blink reflexometer device. Now she's licensed the technology to the Charleston-based company Blink TBI. The iStat, Blink TBI's Blink reflexometer, is now being developed at a larger scale and is backed by a highly reputable executive team, board, and investor group. As Nancy mentioned, when she finally met her engineer to build her prototype, all that was left was a lot of little problems to task through. Drawing from her experience in medicine, parenthood, and entrepreneurship, Nancy had great advice on how to approach problem solving. I think there is some folklore that if you, maybe I'm part vampire, you know, like how do you stop a vampire? You give them a puzzle because they, they can't proceed unless they have to fix it. And that would be me. I sort of look at everything as, as a bit of a puzzle, which is 
devastating interpersonal relationships because you just shouldn't figure people out. That's just bad. But in terms of actual problem solving in reality with no metrics and things that you can deal with and try to figure out, I, I like problem solving. And, and to a certain extent, I sort of have approached my board meetings <laughs> as a problem. I, I think someone who really enjoys problem solving is, is going to be the person that is destined for innovation. You're creative. In, in terms of problem solving process, I try to, so I have, you know, I have a 14 year old and teaching him the, the problem solving, you know, especially with new math is interesting. It's really about, well, what do you know? What unknowns do you have? And how can you take what you know to figure out enough of the unknown so that you can approach some semblance of an answer, right? I mean, this is algebra, right? You have to have as many equations as you have unknowns. I mean, that's, that's as that's simple as that. These are all the lessons that you learned in you know, grade school and in high school, they are still relevant. <laughs> and even in medicine, I, I practice a certain way. If I can, I'm going to address the pathology. If I don't know the pathology, but there seems to be this other thing, I'm going to address the symptom for now and see if anything comes out. See if I can get more information. But at the end of it, if it's like a moving target, and I do have some patients who are like this, I literally tell them, you know, you just have to be different, don't you? And if you are not making improvement the next time I see you, you have to fire me. That really tells me that we're having a dialogue. I'm not going to just chase you. You have to come back and tell me that I'm doing something right or you need to leave <laughs> because I'm not good for you. Because you need that feedback. I do. It has to be a process. It has to, it has to be effective. So when we move forward with any project, if I'm working with a team, we always talk about it. It's, if something just doesn't work, somebody suggested, okay, well, we tried that. Let's, let's move on to the next thing. It's not really pejorative. I mean, I think people really do get their egos and their emotions wrapped up in, in certain outcomes. And to a certain extent, we just have to remove ourselves from what that outcome is reasonably. You can't move to that next place unless you have personal investment in it. But the personal investment also has to line up with the reality of what, what you get, what information you get at the, at the end of it. And when it came to meeting her engineer and larger group, Nancy learned a few lessons about what makes a good team. I look for team members who first understand what it is that we're trying to create. Number two, they believe in the cause and the benevolent end that we're trying to achieve. When people come to me as a physician, they think magically I'm, I have like x-ray vision and everything else and I can just tell them from their chief complaints, like, no, this is a process. I have to understand what it is that you're going through. And it's the same thing with a team. We have, to, we have to all be on the same verbiage. And I've also learned that a good contract really delineates um, all of our, our roles very clearly. And I don't, I don't want to be that legalistic or, but it, you know, I've also learned what is it, you know, good fences make good neighbors or something. Um, those are some of those lessons that I've had to learn. It's for me, it's, it's always easier to work with people who are smart and especially people who are smarter than me. I really am very grateful that I've had to, you know, I've had the luxury of working with a lot of people who are um, 
a lot smarter at, at their little niche than I am. With building a team came failure, but there's always a different way to look at failure. I think that there are failures, but failure is not a, a emotional thing. It's, it's, a, it's a point on a hysteresis curve. <laughs> you, know, you have yield and break, and, and, and that's failure. And at some point, you know, some, of, some people are more elastic and they come back to baseline. Maybe my hysteresis curve looks different than the next person. As for Nancy's tools for innovation. <laughs> I'd say a slide rule, but that's not, that's just being funny. Um, <laughs> my iPhone probably. It is my prosthetic brain, and unfortunately. Um, no other device allows me to learn in real time. I can literally open it up. If there's something I want to look up, I can go to some browser and ask a question and get enough information to figure out what I need to do with it. I am now my best travel agent. I can make a recipe for killer coleslaw. I can <laughs> do all sorts of things just with having information at my fingertips. That would be one. But then the other thing, the, the brain in between my ears, <laughs> that would be my indispensable tool. We've heard our innovators mention the power of their phone before, whether it's for reading and audiobooks or productivity and email. But Nancy did have one more tool that you might not have considered. Exercise is non-negotiable. I think that if you were to find the most successful in the people in the world, they'll all tell you the first thing they do is they work out. And it's just not negotiable. What I do every, you know, I don't do the same workout every day. I try different things. I've been in martial arts. I've tried running. I've done triathlons. I've done yoga. I'm going to start Pilates this year. <laughs> um, just trying something different all the time, and it keeps me physically and mentally agile. Dr. Sai didn't talk about it much, but she is a former Olympian, so it wasn't much of a surprise to me when she started to emphasize how uh, taking care of yourself physically and holistically is important to innovation. Um, she, she talks about it and talked about it, frankly, a after the interview even more, uh, about how she feels like it's just a part of her process for being effective and maintaining, you know, and maintaining her lifestyle um, as well. Yeah, I'm almost the same way. I didn't used to be quite as much of a fanatic as what I've turned into now. But if I haven't worked out and done something on a daily basis, I get I don't get hangry. I just get cranky. Like that's that's my version of this. And so when she that totally resonated with me when she talked about just even trying and out new things. It's not even the same type of exercise. Just really putting yourself almost out of your comfort zone of different types of exercises, how she keeps herself stimulated uh, and the ideas flowing. And actually, Nancy's got some pretty good advice for entrepreneurs on how to protect their ideas. So there was a young innovator who had a reasonably good idea, but not all the pieces are in place yet. Don't be afraid to protect your, protect your brain, protect your intellectual property. And it is. It's it's one of the few things that it's, it's a product of your mind and you, you have a right to it. Don't be quick to um, give it away. But at the same time, don't be afraid to talk about it either. Because if you know enough about what the secret sauce is, you know, that's the thing. You, you always want to keep the secret sauce in kind of like the Coca-Cola safe, right? There's two keys and nobody knows who has them except you own them. And but feel free to just talk to people, get their thoughts, and find out, is there, does this thing already exist? Go to the USPTO site, you know, that's the US Patent Trade Office, and look it up. And don't be afraid to learn something about business. Be a good accountant. 
Understand how much money is going in and coming out. You know, understand where your budget is and figure out if it's going to work. I mean, you know, FedEx costs probably half a billion dollars to get off the ground, but it's ubiquitous and it's a terrific concept. Don't be afraid of how big the ask is as long as there's an upside that is bigger on the other side of it. This is Nancy Trevani and Tsai, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Quarter. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. Originally on Microspheres was probably 10 years ago, but it stayed in the complex and was not in public uh, for probably uh, three, four years. About 10 years ago, we had our first allowed publication, appeared on a, a cover of a magazine, and in it was saying that this is technology, that it's breakthrough technology in the fields of security, environmental remediation, and medicine. And then the phone started ringing off the hook. And I was thinking it might be people that wanted to partner with us and had money, 99% of those phone calls was people that wanted free samples. Mm -hmm.